You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Knezic. Welcome to episode 187. And uh, up until this point, we've been a fairly clean podcast. We don't have much explicit language, but you're going to hear a lot of cursing today. Yeah? Uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> the, the topic. Uh, <laughs> that went over Fran's head, didn't it? it? <laughs> <laughs> wah, wah, wah. Yeah, I totally missed that one. Yeah. I, I apologize. I was in the process of stepping on my headphone cord once again. Oh, so gosh. as you're telling me, I'm like <laughs> yanking my head down to the ground. Yeah. This, this is going to be a good one today. Yeah. Yeah. All right, I'm on my game. I'm yeah, so you're going to hear us say damn a lot. Uh, so children, please close your ears. <laughs> earmuffs, um, earmuffs. Yeah, but we have a really uh, special guest, and uh, you actually heard one of his former colleagues uh, about over a year ago now. Jack Sapansky exactly. on Floating Islands. And yeah. we're talking a little bit about green infrastructure. But one of the other things that company Princeton Hydro does is uh, they do a lot of dam removals, which have become a big thing across the country, not just in the Northeast. I don't know a lot about it either. Like I know the idea, but we saw a presentation on this at SEER when we did the live broadcast mm-hmm. with, with Becca Swadek. And Tom and I were thinking, wow, what a great presentation. And then we had the opportunity to talk about it on the podcast, and we jumped at it. So this is something we've never really covered, and I think everyone will find it of interest mm-hmm. just with how important it is and why. Yeah. Because we, we – this is going to be one of those episodes where we're little kids and ask a million questions. So they always turn out to be some of the better episodes. So Yeah, definitely. So with that, I mm-hmm. want to introduce uh, Jeff Gall, who's the president and founding principal of Princeton Hydro. <clears throat> Excuse me. Hello. Sorry to lose my voice there. <laughs> and uh, and we're going to talk a lot about dams, uh, their impacts, and dam removal. So, uh, Jeff, can you introduce yourself a little bit and uh, and give people a refresher sure. about what who Princeton Hydro is and what you guys do? Sure. So, Princeton Hydro, we're an, a, uh, an engineering and environmental consulting firm. We focus on, on water resources and geotechnical engineering. Um, our, our, our why statement is at Princeton Hydro, we're committed to improving ecosystems, quality of life, and communities for the better. So our passion is really is the integration of science and engineering um, that drive us to exceed. So we, we have about 65 people in, um, in the firm. We're based in our, our main offices in Trenton, New Jersey, but we work all over the Northeast. We have several other offices as well. Um, spread out in the mid-Atlantic. So we, uh, we get around and we do a lot of things like aquatic, uh, aquatic uh, uh, science and consulting for a lot of the large lakes. So as we talk about dam removal, I'll caveat, I love lakes. I love lakes that are in use. I love lakes that are uh, there for pe- use and people, uh, for people. So it's something that we, um, it's really, as we'll talk about, is the disuse of dams. Mm-hmm. So and I've been I've been uh, uh, around since uh, 1998 when we formed the firm, um, and uh, with Mark uh, Gallagher and Steve Souza and Fred Lubnow. So that's been uh, it's been a great experience to date. Um, one of the things you said about using the word "dam" when uh, we would go to Vermont for vacation and my kids were little, there was a road called Dam Road, and so my <laughs> yeah. kids loved it. They would like drive on. We would be on it like we're on Dam Road, Dad. And there's nothing you can say about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's Dam Road. 
And and we we've been fortunate enough to partner with Princeton Hydro throughout the decades uh, on some of the incredible projects that uh, you've been a part of, and we can even touch on. I'm sure we'll touch on some of those as we go through this. One side note before we go, you know, uh, to me, it would be good to start at the beginning with the history of dams in New Jersey, but. Just in your opinion, since you started in 1998 and you're saying like you love lakes and obviously there's a passion about water, has water quality improved over the last 25 years in New Jersey? Uh, I would say that it, it's it's taking strides forward. There's still a lot to be done um, to improve water quality. I mean, we still are um, experiencing um, a lot, even lately, a lot of uh, pressure on and development. And so it is becoming a, um, uh, it is challenging to protect water quality. Um, there are a lot of organizations and grassroots organizations that uh, nonprofits that are working very hard uh, to protect the water quality in the state of New Jersey. Um, I mean, it's a lot better than it used to be. I mean, the Clean Water Act was a blessing for the United States in general. You know, rivers on fire and and um, and water quality in New Jersey was was really terrible. I mean, I grew up on in Pompton Lakes, New Jersey. I grew up on a lake. Um, and, um, you know, that lake had experienced even back, you know, back in the 70s and, and um, in the early 80s when I was living there, you know, a lot of water quality issues, massive algae blooms uh, in the summers. It was hard to tolerate the smell sometimes. It was a beautiful town to grow up in, um, and but sometimes the water quality went down. I think since then, water quality has become, uh, has improved somewhat, but we still have a lot, a long way to go. A lot of our uh, rivers and lakes are still on the, the, um, um, the 303D list, which is the impaired water bodies. Um, uh, from the U.S. EPA, so it's really still a work in progress, so to speak. Um, we're getting there, though. I feel as if the conversation of water quality is happening more often um, now, and mm. and I I wonder if some of that is sparked. I was just at the recently at the state soil conservation district meeting, and DEP did a presentation on um, just climate change impacts and. What are we doing with all this excess water? <laughs> yeah, as we keep building, you know, what how how more frequent uh, frequent hundred uh, year storms are happening and things like that, and how it changes how we design things, and just what are we doing with all this water <laughs> that and and how it impacts everyday life. Yeah, and it, that's a really uh, important uh, point and topic because, and it does relate to dam removal and resiliency, but also um, a lot of the development work and designs, um, even retrofits, and uh, historically have been uh, based on historical rainfall data. So sometimes that rainfall data is 30 years old. Mm -hmm. And so you're really dealing with, uh, you know, rainfalls from the early 1990s. Um, and it's, it's significant. So what happens is now DEP has just recently changed their rules, the inland flood rules, to require looking to the year 2100 at rainfall events then to be able to uh, properly manage that stormwater. But now we still have a lot of infrastructure that's been designed on old information. And I didn't even realize that until that presentation where they're saying we're asking you to look 30 years in advance, but you're designing on data that's 30 years old. Yes. And so they're like really you're, you're 60 years behind. <laughs> yeah. 
Correct. <laughs> so that's a that's a really good point. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so let's to go back to Dan before we get too sidetracked. Um, just to kind of start at the beginning, like how many dams are there in New Jersey? How old are some of these dams? And and let let's start there and then just kind of move forward. And I'd even take it one step even further back and say, what were the dams for? Yeah. Why why were they put there in the first place? Sure. Well, uh, dams, I mean, have been constructed in Jersey since the uh, Europeans started settling the, the, the continent. I mean, it's uh, not just New Jersey, but all over the East Coast, especially in, in New England and, and the Mid-Atlantic. Um, they are since, you know, uh, I think uh, the first, I think Henry Hudson was in New Jersey in, what, 1609. Um, and then they started to settle uh, the, the state then. And I mean, dams were constructed basically as it's interesting uh, timber. They would they would build them out of timber, but they were needed for uh, powering grain mills. Mm-hmm. And so grinding grain, uh, obviously, uh, right as the Europeans arrived, there was a plethora of forest and wood uh, that could be harvested and sold. And so there were lumber mills that were constructed. And so they were all built around these uh, in the in these rivers. Um, I would say uh, there was actually a, a colleague of mine who, who passed away. He had let me borrow a book once. It was on the on mills of New Jersey. So it didn't have a map, but it described where they all were. And essentially, almost every linear foot of stream and river in the state of New Jersey was impounded by a dam for milling operations and power operations. Um, there were probably, uh, I, you know, double or triple the amount of dams that actually exist today that just, you know, fell apart over the years. Um, but these dams, it was interesting, the construction of it is they used to build them, uh, this is in the 17 and 1800s when there was a really a boom for the Industrial Revolution, um, and they're using hydropower for that. Um, and they would build timber crib dams, which were basically made out of wood filled with rock, and they would put wood, uh, you know, uh, wood on top of them as a cover. Um, they leaked like you wouldn't believe, but as long as more water was going over the dam than under, you were in good shape. Um, but a lot of these dams has started to fall apart. Um, uh, once, you know, uh, for example, uh, when engines were invented and so now you could actually generate or run your operations with an, you know, an engine in the building run by fossil fuel, uh, or there was cheap electricity that was available and that actually impacted a lot of the rivers. Some of the, some of the dams were built for ice harvesting. Um, so mountain lakes in Princeton, for example, was an ice harvesting operation, um, and so they, they constructed these dams and, and these two dams to basically uh, harvest ice so that they could preserve food in the summertime um, um, in that area. And there were a lot of those ice, you know, those ice harvesting uh, dams that were constructed. Um, and then in the 20th century, that's when um, we started getting these much larger dams. So, uh, uh, for example, the Columbia Lake Dam that was just removed a few years ago. Uh, that was built in, I think, 1906, and that was uh, one of the first hydropower dams in the state, so it actually generated electricity. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, there were also other types of dams for recreation. Lake, Lake Apatcong actually was not, and Musconetcong were not originally built for recreation. They were mm-hmm. built actually to supply water to the Morris Canal. And so, uh, and basically, as that was sort of the high point there, and they would, you know, to connect um, the, the Delaware River with the with the Hudson River. And, uh, and so that was uh, um, vital to that. But there are other lakes that were actually built for recreational purposes. Medford Lakes 
down in southern New Jersey. Uh, was built as a, as, a, as a vacation community originally. Mm-hmm. Um, Lake Mohawk as well was a, also a vacation uh, spot and was built for recreational purposes. Um, and then there were also uh, obviously Monksville Reservoir, Wanakee Reservoir, Spruce Run, Round Valley, Manasquan. Uh, there's a, a number of dams that were constructed for water supply and are still functioning and serving humans today um, as well. Uh, and then to add to that, uh, concerns about flooding in the 60s and 70s, the USDA, the, the Soil Conservation Service, which is now known as the Natural Resource Conservation Service, uh, built a number of flood control dams. So right now, um, in the dam safety database, there's about 1,700 uh, regulated dams in the wow. state of New Jersey. Wow. I wouldn't have guessed that. If you, if you were to ask me to have guessed beforehand, I don't think I would have gone that high at all. I don't think I would have guessed mm-hmm. over 1,000. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's big. I mean, it, and uh, there's a study done by uh, Brian Graber at American Rivers a couple years ago in New England, for example. They think there's like 14,000 dams um, uh, just in New England alone. Um, and that doesn't include culverts and other, you know, uh, types of structures that block, you know, streams. Um, and so that's it's – a, it's a big, big number. As you started yeah. talking about historical dams, I started – thinking in my head real quick like which which ones have i visited like i've been to batstow village which you know they still have the mill there and will operate it and i'm what's the one in crosswicks uh tom do you remember the one right outside of cream ridge you know the one i'm talking about but that's a historic yeah, but I don't mill site and they'll run that I, I just can't remember the name of it but i started thinking of all those that's they still kind of use for historical purposes to show people how mills were used mm-hmm. and things like that yeah, and some of those are maintained, and they're you know uh, D, the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection Dam Safety Bureau regulates them through the Dam Safety Act of New Jersey, and you know th- the ones that are operating and in use, um, you know they, they it's fine. There's there's a, you know they serve a purpose. Providing historical um, education is important as well, um, so that's also an important um, you know aspect of of what dams serve. And now I have other questions, but I don't want to get sidetracked way too <laughs> too early. I'm writing them down so that I can bring them back, bring them back up. How ma- to when did when did the idea of dam removal kind of come into play, and why? And how many dams have we removed since then? Sure. So that's a that's an excellent question too, because. Uh, up until probably uh, the 60s, there were probably not a lot of dam removals for other than maybe if they failed or, or um, it was targeted for decommissioning. Uh, American Rivers has been tracking dam removals since uh, they, they collected data back to 1912. But in the 2000s, um, they've been actually every year compiling the number of dams. Uh, so since 1912 uh, in the United States, um to, through the end of 2022, there were 2,025 dams removed, at least found or recorded in the United States. Okay. And it sounds like a big number, but the Army Corps of Engineers National Inventory of Dams has on their database 90,000 dams. Mm-hmm. And those are just the ones that are regulated uh, by, or, or monitored by the Corps. There are other ones that are not quite as high. There's still impediments to fish and, and, and public hazards. Um, but there's been estimates that there could be 10 times that amount of dams in the United States right now. Um, and in New Jersey, we have pretty tight standards on dams. So 1,700 dams, 
you know, if maybe there's another hundred or you know two hundred that might be not not on their radar uh, as regulated, but still blockages maybe. Um, but it's it's a pretty tightly regulated um, um, uh, industry in the state. When obviously we know that some of these dam removals are very important. Have, is it well documented the damages that these amount of dams have created? To our waterways and fish communities over the the decades or centuries. Yeah, I mean it's it's a worldwide problem. Um, there are still even pressure now in, in some of the developing countries to develop hydropower. Um, it's it's a considered a relatively cheap um, source of of electricity. Uh, you know, once you build the dam and if you have enough water, then it you know it provides uh, you know free basically energy for you after that. Um, but it, you know, it, it is a dams. I mean, out west, dams where you were when they were constructed, they displaced you know Native Americans uh, to build these dams. Uh, in Canada, a lot of the hydropower, hydro you know power companies up there, they built dams. People were displaced. Even up in North Jersey, where, for example, the Monksville Reservoir, Wanakee Reservoir, there were towns that small little villages that were relocated. Now those were probably, you know, those were more, uh, I, I don't know the history of how they were relocated or why, but, um, some of the, 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 you know, the, uh, the white settlements that were up there were relocated to construct some of those, um, those reservoirs as well. So they, that's the one, that's really a big issue is, is, uh, impact to, um, um, native peoples, um, and, and the historical impact, um, they block fish passage, uh, if you can imagine American Shad, for example, on the East Coast, uh, was a prime and a, a, a primary food source for Native Americans. There's a book written about American Shad called The Founding Fish uh, by McPhee that basically, uh, supposedly the history is that it saved the uh, Continental Army mm-hmm. uh, at Valley Forge uh, when they came in the spring and they were starving. Um, but we've dammed these rivers and blocked the flow, and a lot of these fish rely on needing to live in the ocean, which are considered, they called anadromous, and they swim up rivers. Some are what are called catadromous, and they actually live in the rivers, and then they spawn in the sea, like American eel, for example, is a, is a, is a species that um, lives its main life cycle in uh, our, our headwater streams and, and rivers, and then reproduces out at the Sargasso Sea. So, it's it's um, you know some of these fish take a long time to travel and it's impacted that um, dams also impact water quality their heat sinks so uh, you build up a figure you build up a body of water it sits in the sun water heats up it creates algae blooms it's a source of nutrients um, it disrupts floodplain connectivity and natural function and values for those systems. And then and then at the at, as I talked about regulation dams you know if they fail, um, at, at, at best, they might damage some property or worse, they can kill people. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah. you know, thinking about all of those things, it's really easy to say, all right, great, we're in. Let's take some of these out. But all of my questions that I've been writing down are, well, what happens? Life has changed since so much since so many of these dams have been put in that it's just not that easy to say, okay, let's reverse it. I would imagine. Absolutely. Um, the, if you think about, look at New Jersey towns, for example, um, a lot of towns are built around rivers, 
and you know the main areas of the of the municipalities or cities are in around this river. Why? Because that's where the industry was. It was being run by the the milling operations back in the day, and um, so these towns started to form around them. And some got very large, um, and some stayed relatively small. But nonetheless, if you really go around the state, you'll see that that's been a um, where people uh, congregated for living. Um, one of the other, and that, so there's a social aspect of this. Number one, it was the source of the origination of these communities. Uh, but number two, it's sort of become the aesthetic of, and the historical element of these communities. So from a people standpoint, they're very attached to these structures. I, like I said, I grew up in Pompton Lakes. I grew up on, on Pompton Lake. We had what we called mm-hmm. when I was a kid, Falls. I didn't even think of it as a dam when I was young. They just called it the falls, but it was actually a man-made, it's a man-made dam, you know, structure. Um, And so, uh, you you know, you people have grown up and generations have lived around these structures and and impoundments. And so there's a social aspect of it. Um, And then there's the, uh, the infrastructure associated with it. So a lot of these dams were actually built before the heavy development was done. So they started the dam that municipality built out community they filled in some of the valleys next to the uh, the impoundment of the of the dam, the lake. Uh, they put bridges in, foundations, utilities went across the lakes, and people thought, well, these dams will probably be here forever, so they don't make them quite as deep. And so you'd remove the dam, and you can expose utilities. You can expose. Uh, you can actually, you know, because now even if you remove a dam, the valley may be missing now because it's been partially or fully filled. Mm-hmm it's now going to not act like a, a, a river. So you, you have to actually provide some engineering and science to try to get the river back to its, its, um, uh, its form and function, which is possible. It's yeah. just, it's just challenging. And, and I, I, you sorry. kind of said it, but one of those challenges has to be, these were built for civilization structures. So then you have civilization moving in and they're where, it used to be, um, uh, what am I trying to say? Where it used to be something could have, uh, where you need to do this, This. what am I trying to say here, Fred? <laughs> where, tr- <laughs> where you need to perform this act. This is where this this uh, natural feature should go. There's a building there. Um, yeah. And I was thinking, I had, I had seen a presentation maybe 15 years ago where they were documenting <clears throat> the amount of cases where, Farmers had changed the fluvial structure of streams to benefit their agriculture uh, or practices, the cattle and things yeah. like that, where they've literally moved. All right, the stream was here. We're going to we're going to channel it over here and, and change the shape of that. So now things aren't even anywhere remotely close to what they were before the dam went in. Yeah, there's a funny story you say about there's uh, about streams that straighten them. And um, I think DuPont, there's actually, you can find it online now. There's a flyer that was scanned from back in like the 30s, I think, or the 20s. And, you know, use dynamite to straighten your channels. And so you, you would you would, uh, you could use dynamite to blow up the uh, parts of the floodplain so that it would channelize the river and, you know, get all that out. So, um, yeah, it's, it is a big issue. We don't really have, and, and that's the other thing. You know, I grew up in an area that I thought was very natural. I played on the lake streams i you know we ran around in the hill areas uh, around our town um in the in the borough of the of pompton lakes but we had the dupont plant i'm mentioning dupont a few times i'm not advertising yeah. <laughs> dupont which heavily contaminated pompton lake 
there was a stream coming out of DuPont that basically was called the Acid Brook, and it's labeled as such on USGS maps because of the, the contamination that was uh, seen to come out of that area. You know, the lake was not a, it was, it's not a natural lake. Um, and, and our, uh, forests were probably heavily, uh, logged in the, you know, the 17 and 1800s. And so that was a second growth forest. So what I thought was natural and it was great growing up there and I, it was, you know, it was somewhat natural, but not natural in the sense of untouched. So you're right. It, there's a lot of manipulation going on in, in, in our, uh, in our region. Even I was thinking, and, and I hadn't thought about this before, just how the quality of some of these streams have changed. They've been daylighted or the uh, riparian buffers have been removed. So instead of being shallow and wide, they're narrow and, and deep. Um, and I thought about that. I was my, – my wife and I were visiting Font Hill over in Doylestown, and they were talking about this huge stream that used to be in the back, and they channeled it. But when you go out there, there's almost nothing there except for the, the bed. There's like a trickle of water that used to be their main water supply that they would channel towards the, the mansion. And I was thinking so many of these things have changed just from infrastructure. Do we even – and I may, I'm, I know I'm getting ahead, but how do you even design a dam removal? Do you, is it even possible to know what will happen? I, I know there's fluvial geomorphologists that, that work on these things, but is it – can you really 100% predict what will happen when that dam comes out? The answer is you can't make a 100% prediction, um, but you can get real close. Um, when you're designing a dam removal, it's it's you're not just trying to figure out what's the dam made of, um, how are we going to take it apart, what's the you know. But a lot of these impoundments, even these, uh, and there's I just want to uh, sort of provide a definition. I, I say run of the river dam, and I'll say that a few times. Okay. One of the river dam is is a dam that doesn't provide any flood storage. It's just a spillway from bank to bank. Okay, and so there's no impoundment with it, and they and it's so they, it's the run of the river. But even those run of the river dams get sediment behind them. It impounds sediment. Uh, we're working on a project right now, uh, Paulina Lake Dam Removal for the Nature Conservancy um, and DEP, and that one has about sixty six thousand yards of sediment. So you can't just take the dam out and let it go. You know, it's going to have a massive impact. Um, uh, a colleague of mine, Eric Sildorf, once said, um, uh, you know, uh, the one thing that, for example, freshwater mussels, you know, freshwater mussels can't run. You know? yeah. So if you send too much sediment downstream, they can get smothered. Uh, it can impact the channel capacity, it could cause flooding. Um, and it also can hurt uh, fish and the turbidity in the water. So you have to figure out the configuration of the sediment, what's it made of. We'll go in and do borings. We'll collect samples. Uh, we'll look at, you know, how the river is functioning right now. We will look upstream and downstream. As you said, that was a, a good point. Uh, looking at the geomorphology of the region, is it bedrock founded? Uh, will it head cut? Are there any other types of um, infrastructure? Has there been infilling? Might we need to armor an area that now is historic, was historically filled and is now a road? Um, and so, those are the kind of things that we have to really look at. We do investigations for utilities. Do we have to either relocate or lower a utility, or do we have to armor it in some manner? Um, and so, there's a lot of different um, aspects of it. But there's a lot of great data already out there on dam removals that were completed. So, for example, we can look at okay, uh, we have an impoundment with 66,000 cubic yards in it. 
if we released it, maybe like, you know, we predict 40,000 of it might be migrating downstream. Not all of it. Some of it will stay on the banks. Uh, but um, what's the carrying capacity of the river? In other words, rivers, and that's what would cause the sedimentation in these impoundments. The rivers, they're basically, I call them the conveyor belts of mountain decommissioning, right? So they're always carrying sediment. Sediment uh, transport is a natural function of river systems. So what we'll also look at is, well, what is that river carrying on an annual basis anyway? And then we look at the percentage that we think in the time frame that we think that sediment's going to move to see if it will have any impact on the river system. If we think it's a little bit high, we'll actually do some active sediment removal um, and things of that nature. Now, also, the river's also do a lot of the work themselves. You get it out, you know, you, you take the dam out, you ma- manage the sediment, you create as much as you can. Um, then you want to get, you know, a lot of times we'll actually try to accelerate reforestation or get meadow plantings in there and seeding and things like that. Um, um, and so, like you said, there's an, a, a plethora of, of projects that we worked on with Pinelands to, to stabilize these impoundments and get them sort of on a path to, um, self-sustaining. And I talked about it's not 100%. So one of the things that we've been working with lately and working with DEP and our clients is adaptive management. And adaptive management is where we put in a, we estimate a budget of what we think might have, you know, for what we think might need to be adjusted to come back. So we let the river do its, you know, we do everything we can. We get it to a place where we think the river is going to be moving in the correct direction in terms of its restoration. And then if you get some erosion or you might get a minor bank failure or something like that, we want to have the budget to have the contractor go back in and address that. And then, but usually, you know, within a few years, you know, it's it's on its own and it's on its way. Um, so it's it's a... Uh, it's definitely an investigatory process. And there's other things like cultural resources issues. Um, you want, you know, uh, both uh, historical, the dams, like you said, became part of the community and the history. Uh, uh, Native Americans, if we're impacting riverbanks and we're, the, you know, we're Native Americans using those riverbanks and might there be artifacts. Um, uh, and then also um, uh, threatened and endangered species, you know, uh, we know that rivers and their natural functions, you know, will help threaten endangered species, but we don't want the construction to hurt them. So, for example, um, uh, uh, listed uh, mussels are a big deal, freshwater mussels. So we got to make sure that we are uh, trying to protect those as much as we possibly can. Is That's a long answer. <laughs> no, that's a great <laughs> yeah. answer. Is when it comes to dam removal, is it, it's the limiting factor money, is it? Is it anything's possible if the money's there, or has there ever been a situation where after the research it's like this isn't possible to do? When we got started, I started doing, I think our first dam removal was in 2006. I started looking at dam removals in the late 90s uh, because of Hurricane Floyd. Um, Dams weren't really on a lot of people's radar. And even when like a Floyd happens, there was like a temporary, like, you know, uh, humans have short-term memories, especially when it comes to disasters. So you have to act as soon as the disaster happens to, so people will act on it. Uh, but when Hurricane Floyd ha- hit, we realized that, hey, uh, and I didn't realize this at the time, but we, I was like, hey, good marketing. We should send letters out to all the dam owners. And this was pre-9-11, so they would just give you the dam list and, and owners. And we would send letters out to say, hey, you know, if your dam's damaged or it needs to be inspected, dam safety had sent out these enforcement letters. 
we can help you out. And during that process in 99, I started real finding out that there were some funds for actually removing dams through uh, American Rivers teamed up with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, and had funds. But they were like $25,000 grants, maybe $50,000. Uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and USDA would also um, actually kick in some, some uh, relatively small amounts back then. But to remove a dam could cost $100,000 plus. And so we'd have to amalgamate, or is that a word? Uh, uh, you know, create a, an aggregation of funds um, to, um, um, to try to put the dam, to remove the dams. And even then the dam owner had to put some money and a lot of money into it to do it. Now it's their dam. So should people will argue that they should pay for part of it. Um, that's a whole nother discussion. And so for the first, you know, I would say 15 years, it was a struggle. But as awareness started growing, more funds became available. In fact, it culminated. American Rivers did a lot of um, uh, lobbying when the, um, the, the, infrastructure, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act came out. There was $800 million put in for dams and dam removals and fish passage. If you go through that document, you do a word search, you will find multiple... Um, multiple listings of fish passage um, and things of that nature to, to go to, to both you know, the, the DOTs of the states for culverts, uh, NOAA for dam removals and fish passage and habitat restoration, um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, um, USDA. They all have, there's a lot of money out there. Now it's still trickling out. It's taking a while, but there is a lot of money. Um, the Nature Conservancy, um, has been uh, really leading the charge in, in New Jersey uh, recently um, on dam removal. And they've been, they've actually created a goal of trying to remove, I think, 25, at least 25 dams in the next five years, oh, wow. something of that nature. But it's, it's, um, and they're really good at fundraising. Um, and they're also very good at um, working with uh, the agencies that provide that funding. Recently, net the net the, um, the NJDEP Office of Natural Resource and Restoration, great group. Uh, they get funds from indus- industrial um, uh, industry damages and fines, and so uh, what'll end up happening is uh, they'll actually fund it. So they're funding, for example, the, the Paulina Lake Dam removal um, uh, in Blairstown. So uh, they're really uh, doing that. So there's a lot of money there now um, to do that. You mentioned a lot of great partners, the Nature Conservancy and, and so forth. Would this be possible without – like, how many partners are needed? I, I guess it depends on, on what each one brings to the table, but would it be possible if you took the Nature Conservancy out of the factor or, or another one of these organizations out of the factor? It would be difficult. I would say that there's, it's, there's three legs. There's the NGOs like the Nature Conservancy. There's the governmental agencies who regulate and also can provide funding. Um, and then there's the the private sector like us, uh, consultants and contractors um, that work together on these things. You take one of those legs out and you can't get any of these done. The Nature Conservancy especially has been leading the charge. They, uh, Beth Styler Barry, um, who works with his uh, 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 Michelle de Blasio's supervisor um, and colleague, um, she's been leading the charge in dam removals. Actually, I did my second dam removal with her ever. Um, on the Muskinetcong River, but without them, it would be very difficult because they have the ability and wherewithal to go out and put all these stakeholders together. Both the funder, well, 
the funders and the local community. And in the local community, you have people forward against it, and they're very good at working with them to try to make the best of the situation. But yeah, without without those NGOs it, or the or the federal agencies, it just these dams would be in big trouble. Yeah, and and this is probably a basic question, but who who typically owns these dams? Are there any privately owned dams? Or are they because they're in some cases like a um, public like, waterways, or and they're in a public waterway? Are they not uh, or is the owner in question? I guess. Yeah, the the um, so there there's an it's all over. I mean, the mm-hmm. governmental agencies um, own these dams. Um, uh, private landowners own these dams, um, and so it's it's a mix. Um, even the ones in the river, property boundaries in some uh, communities go through the river. Uh, so as an example, we worked on the Finesville Dam in, um, uh, on the border of Warren and Hunterdon County. And that one um, really, uh, it was owned by a private landowner who I don't think realized what he got into when they bought the property, then realized he had a dam. He was resistant, thought maybe he could do some hydropower with it or something like that, um, but needed some convincing that it was going to be very expensive to repair it. And so he finally um, bought into the fact that it would be better because there's money to remove the dams. There's no money to repair them. <laughs> yeah. given to you. you can get a loan from this, you know, from dam safety, yeah. but it's a loan. You have to pay it back. Yeah. Interesting. How, how much time from first concept where you start researching uh, what needs to be done or if it's possible till the moment the project is finished, how much time elapses in, in that step one to last step? I always say the the planning and the and the design and the permitting are years, and the dam removal is weeks um, <laughs> itself. So yeah, it does take a long time. There's there's number one. I think the biggest issue or the first topic or or um, issue to you got to manage is stakeholder engagement, making sure the community is behind it, um, and if they're not behind it, at least they understand it. So like you said. Tom, um, if there's a private landowner, and but it, this pond's been in the center of a community for a, 200 years, well, they're like, well, that's our lake, and you're like, you have to say, well, no, it's not. It's it's this one person's dam, and there are other property owners or municipalities that own mm-hmm. the impoundment, but it's that person's responsibility, and by law, they're responsible to make sure that dam stays in compliance, and if it doesn't, they have to pay for repairs or to remove it. <coughs> Excuse me, and so. Um, it's trying to, it's getting them to understand that mm-hmm. is, is a big deal. Then, and that's, that can take a few years, um, just to, to get that topic out there. Um, and then there's the fundraising, um, to do the permitting and design, uh, which can take another, you know, year or two. Um, and then there's the design and permitting, which also takes about another year, about basically a year and a half from, from start to finish on design and permitting. So, if you're going to remove a dam, there could be four years of time that could elapse. That, uh, excuse me, I'm sorry. Bless you. There could be no, there could be four years of time that could elapse before the dam removal happens. And then, like I said, four weeks later, eight weeks later, the dam's gone. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, it made me think, Tom, of your family's property up in in Gloversville. Now oh, yeah. that lake is was created by a beaver dam. I think it originally was a beaver dam. Okay. That then the the owners of the property then reinforced, and then it's kind of goes 
back and forth with beavers damming it up and and not damming it up. But, and, uh, and, yeah. I, and I think of like some of the interesting flora that occurs there now because of that. Yeah. Like you have pitcher plants on bogs and, and things like that. And this is in the Adirondacks. That's actually a really common thing um, where you'd have beavers come in, dam up a, a waterway. The waterway would then – or the would become a pond or a lake, raise up. And uh, basically there's – I forget the exact process that would happen. But you'd have um, – uh, a chemical reaction under the ground, I think, because of the anaerobic conditions, and then it would actually form <coughs> bubbles and raise the former like peat that was on the yeah. ground up, and you'd have these floating islands. Yeah. And it's really common in the Adirondacks, but um, driving by, you wouldn't know that's what it is. It's like you have to be out there, and you're standing on them like, this is sinking as I'm <laughs> standing on top of it. But, yeah, it is a, but you have a lot of carnivorous plants. Um, yeah. It's a really, really interesting environment. And I was thinking, like, that property was partially bought because of the lake that was there, and the house was built in such a way with with windows yeah. overlooking the lake. Now, if someone were to come in and say, we have to take this, this dam should really come out. Like I can mm-hmm. uh, understand yeah. the emotion behind some of this, someone going, Absolutely. wait. Absolutely. Like, it's a big deal. I, that's got to be difficult. <laughs> yeah, and these people, you know, it's like you said, they bought it based on the market that, you know, a water view – um, is, you know, they paid for that water view in addition to the house, you know. Sometimes they say, look, we're going to give you the house for free, but the the, the view is a million dollars. So, yeah. you know, it's it's it that becomes a, a, a real big issue. And again, like I said, a lot of those big lake communities, those dams aren't coming out anytime, anytime soon. Um, they provide a big economic engine for regions like, look, Lake of Padcon um, is a huge economic engine for the state of New Jersey and is vitally important to the economy and humans. Um, and so that's, that's the dam that they're going to maintain and not come out. Um, but then again, the state owns that dam and they, so they have the wherewithal to keep it up, up to standards. When the dam comes out and, and, and the change has been made, how much, and I'm sure this varies for every situation, um, is there a lot of, you know, and Tom and I visited websites or websites, job sites where, they think the water's going to go one way and the energy is greater and it's forming its own path and and you have to hard hard channel some of the like what methods are used is it i'm assuming that in some cases maybe you can use core logs maybe sometimes it's it's root wads and and rocks sometimes it's cement i would i would imagine based on the scenario it could be anything yeah it's a, it can be a combination i mean in low energy systems uh, Biologs are a great, or you know, core logs are very a great option uh, for that, um, and they're even great just to use in general in the landscape uh, when you're when you're trying to stabilize an area and, and restore it. Um, but yeah, depending on the situation, wood has become uh, a real uh, tool that consultants have been using now to try to naturalize these river systems. I mean, historically, rivers were you know, they were chock full of wood. I mean, if you mm-hmm. can imagine, there's no humans around and the trees are falling and growing. And so uh, wood habitat was extremely important to fisheries in the area. So adding wood also provides both armoring and habitat um, as well. And we use a lot of core matting. So, for example, we just completed uh, a dam removal on the Muskinetcong River um, on the uh, Beatty's Mill Dam in Hackettstown. And so we had, we uh, stabilized, we, reached, we uh, put the river back where it should be, there was an erosion channel around it, so we filled that in. 
um, uh, make a floodplain wetland out of it. And then we put, you know, a, a relatively thick bio and, you know, uh, uh, a biodegradable fabric down and seeded it um, with both temporary and permanent uh, native seed mixture so that it could grow. So there's a lot of different opportunities. In a lot of cases, rock is absolutely necessary. Bridges, uh, infrastructure, a, a, a very tall embankment. Mm-hmm. You might need to armor at least the toe and make sure that it doesn't get undermined and eroded and then do some bioengineering above it. So, yep. yeah, there's a, there's a plethora of, of opportunities for, for stabilization. And Tom and I visited a, uh, a job site where they wanted a kayak path, like this meandering yes, kayak yeah. path. But unfortunately, it was at the confluence of two rivers. <laughs> it was like the Cooper right. River and the Delaware River, and they couldn't understand why everything was washing washing out. And it was like that energy they, – they were thinking that the, the energy shouldn't be that great. It didn't make sense, but the energy was obviously so great that it was – You know, the only thing we could say is let it form its own path and then go out. You can either hard armor or you can let it form its own mm-hmm. path and go in and plant around it. And that, that's another good point, too, because, you know, people think of, oh, we're losing our lake and there's going to be no opportunity. But the reality is there's still going to be a river running through it. Um, that's a phrase of movie, but it, it will happen. Um, and it it will be different. It's not going to be, OK, it's not going to be an open water situation with largemouth bass and, and those typical lake fisheries. But you know what? You might get smallmouth bass in there, which are, you know, equally or more aggressive um, in terms of fighting and trout, uh, you know, get some trout returning to the area, maybe lose some of the what they call the the invasive fish like uh, carp, you know, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Asian carp is a problem. And so that is so you're really fundamentally changing the system, but you're not eliminating it. You're just changing it. And your point about access, uh, we also on dam removals can provide access so, we, you know, you think about it, you remove a dam, you now have an impoundment. Um, you now have sort of a clean slate. So you have houses around it. We did one uh, recently, and it was completed in 2022, and uh, there were several homes were along this impoundment, and they were worried about access to the water. So what we did is we reinforced the retaining walls that the, the, the impoundment had initially gone up against, and we built some stone steps so that now they could walk down to the river. And they ended up being very happy um, about it. So... Those are the things where we can, yes, you're 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 going to lose the lake, but we can also provide um, accommodations to allow somebody that live next to the lake to still enjoy the river. Yeah, which yeah, is wonderful. Sure. That makes it easy. <laughs> well, no, easy. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, still would rather have. I think they would yeah. still rather have their lake. No, but I, it's, I, it definitely makes it more palatable, and um, and, and a lot of times they're appreciative of the fact that you're trying. Stay tuned for more of the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Does that, in some instances, reduce their risk of flooding? If in, in some of these instances that where it changes, you know, where maybe it might flood on a, on a major rainstorm that it, it fixes those events? Absolutely. They, um, uh, um, it, it, like the run of the river dams, like you said, they don't provide, provide flood storage. So removing them or keeping them has no impact on downstream. But the houses that live along the impoundment, think about it this way. that Let's say a dam is six, seven feet high. 
and so the water coming over it is artificially already elevated to that height. Now you get a flood, and that's going to elevate that much further than the downstream area um, of the river. And so a lot of times we will remove one of those dams, even though we're under the river dams, it'll actually reduce. I'm not, I never say eliminate, but it'll definitely reduce the opportunity for flooding of those homes in there and their their um, other property. Like I was thinking about back in the early 2000s, there was a rain event in just south of us in Rancocas along the Rancocas Creek where I think they got seven inches of rain in one hour. And all the all the homes along the creek were in floodplains and all flooded. It was a, a major catastrophe. And I wonder if there were dams there that could have been removed, would it have lessened some of that impact? Like I know things so change, but the 2000, 2004 flood or something. Yeah, or something. yeah that was it. So I, that's um, that's where I'm my head's at thinking about some of those things, saying could could you alleviate some of that? The extreme events, no. The answer okay. is no. That, right. that would not have helped uh, um, that that watershed. Um, it it you know it would the the benefits would have been very small simply because now if the dams failed and some of it. Um, is an issue. So, and actually I'm, I'm a little mistaken there. So in that flood, actually in Medford lakes, yeah. the failure of one dam actually cascaded and caused the failure of dams downstream. Okay. So it actually also raised the elevation of those rivers now. Um, and then locally, uh, for example, it likely had caused more damage than it did before, but overall, you know, the damages were, uh, you know, that's, I would say, a percentage of the total damages that had occurred. Okay. Um, if they were removed, yeah, there might be a little less damage, but um, how much, you know, is that? But also the people there, they value their lakes. This is like the Medford Lakes area, yeah. Birchwood Lakes, uh, um, and Lake Pine. They all, they, they value their lake systems, and I think they understand the risks, um, and understand what they need to do to maintain their dams. Um, and so, and that 2004 storm was a big lesson. Yeah. It kind of woke everybody up to go, oh, wait, there's, there is a dam holding up our lake. And so when we rebuild it, let's make sure it doesn't fail. Again. Yeah. Yeah. The, so we get to talk, I guess this is a part where now that we're talking more completion, we get to talk a little bit about plants because native mm-hmm. plants are important to stabilize those banks from erosion control and, and provide shading. Have you ever when, – when these dams are removed, has there been cases where maybe there were still native plants in the seed bank that naturally they started to rebound? I, obviously, they're supplemented because you need plants there now to, to hold those banks, but whether it's live stakes or, or, or containerized plants or bare root. But um, do you see rebounds that way, and how is wildlife – is there documentation of wildlife and and usage after the dams removed? So dams, when they're removed and the the, the sediment is exposed or the lake bed is exposed, um, what happens is the uh, there there is a like called bank seed. I don't know if it's in there for historically or it was uh, there you know depositionally from uh, you know uh, seed um, landing in the water. But people would be surprised that a lot of the, the myth behind a dam removal is it's just it's going to be a mud a mud pit and it's going to be ugly and, and muddy and in perpetuity. And the reality is usually the season after you remove a dam, the growing season, it bursts green. Um, sometimes I have a little bit of trouble, but it, it still starts to turn green. Um, and I talk about the little trouble. Sometimes it does need to be supplemented. So okay. 
we will spec uh, seed mixtures to go in there to help accelerate it. Uh, like I said, or, you know, we, we talked about actually uh, before the podcast started, the Nature Conservancy, uh, they actually like to, you know, they want to reforest their floodplains, which is great. And so what they'll do is they'll go in and, and plant trees to help accelerate that. Um, it's interesting, too, because a lot of the seed bank is old, is I'll call it relatively prior to invasives, okay. you know, showing up and taking over. Um, so a lot of the native plants will come back, but you do have to be uh, diligent. Uh, um, Japanese knotweed and, and frag, phragmites, is a major threat to these systems uh, when that you know when they're uh, when the dams are removed, and so you have to do uh, monitoring. Uh, preventative planting is always obviously the best bet. You may have to go in there and treat if they do take over, but if you can, you can get like for example a site forested quickly. Or, you know, and I, I mean quickly in, in a decade or so after you plant your trees, then that can help shade out some of those invasives. But I mean, it's it's the you know it's the uh, who's who of invasives. Japanese hops can come in mile a minute. You name it. It's it's they they if they see an opportunity, um, they will will take advantage of it. So it's important to do that. Now, uh, for example, in um, the, the Columbia Lake Dam removal, um, it was interesting. We kept seeing these holes. In the in the lake bed, when it, after it was removed, it, it was starting to vegetate over, turn into a floodplain. It was the deep meadow scrub shrub that was starting to grow, and there were these holes in the ground. And what we found out is they were. We think they we saw a, an event where fox actually were were diving on and digging out mice wow. in the in the lake beds. And so there were these holes all over the place that they were. You know, they found a you know a bonanza of of their own wildlife that they could feed on. Um, you know, so, and then obviously the, the, the return of anadromous fish, um, uh, the Musconetcong river, uh, the removal of the Hughesville dam. Um, and we never, I mean, we removed dams downstream of that, but it was the, it, the removal of the, the Hughesville dam, literally the next spring shad were found. Um, and one of our colleagues actually Clay Emerson caught shad just up upstream. Oh, wow. He was fishing for something else cause that's illegal. Um, but he was fishing for bass and things like that up there, but he caught a shad. Wow. Um, and so I was, you know, so it's, it's something that, um, is, uh, um, you know, it's, it's a very quick return. That's the one thing American river says that the, uh, dam removal is one of the most imp- positively impactful, um, methods of ecosystem restoration. So it's it's a big you know it's definitely a a definite positive you know reaction if it's done right as well. So you got to have it designed right and implemented correctly. Does it become more difficult in the decision if it's an area that's an estuary? Maybe it's brackish. Like I'm thinking of the Meadowlands, which was originally freshwater, and then after weiring and and uh, floodgates and things like that become became brackish is i i guess you can't go back from that it's never going to be freshwater again but does it does it impact some of these areas where it may make it where it's freshwater make it brackish by doing some of these things yeah we, we actually there's there's a, a demo we did up in um uh, in massachusetts and it was the first blockage on on a tidal stream and we knew that when the dam was removed it would return the tide system back and so uh, we did. We removed the dam, and that was the goal: is to try to get more um, interchange of, of of tidal interchange and exchange 
and allow access for more anadromous fish like river herring um, into these smaller little estuaries. And so, yeah, it's going to convert from a relatively freshwater impoundment to a saltwater or brackish water type system. Um, so it could definitely be a positive, you know, element of, of, of the project. I don't think there's too much of a negative kind of, you know, association with that. Um, even dams that are located like it, um, there's a couple of dams on the, that, that are first blockages, for example, in the Delaware. And people there are like, well, if we remove the, the, this run of the river dam, isn't flooding going to, the river's not going to come upstream. And the answer is no, it's not because the dam's already higher than that floodwater would have been. Okay. So you remove the dam, and yeah, the floodwater might come upstream, but it's going to be at a lower elevation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and if it was a big enough flood that overtopped the dam anyway, well, it still would do the same thing <laughs> with the dam carrot on it. So, yeah, there's it's definitely has, a, I think, a positive influence. It also is a matter of your desire. I mean, a lot of coastal ponds and impoundments were built for waterfowl, hunters, and things yeah. like that. So, um you know, again, some of those those impoundments are considered, uh, you know, valuable stopover, you know, for flyover uh, species that uh, are migrating. So you got to you got to make sure you you pick those carefully. Did Hurricane Sandy influence certain areas that needed to be removed, dam removal, uh, because of impacts from Sandy? Sandy triggered the federal. Obviously, when you get a, a natural disaster, a lot of federal money flows in. Um, so there were a number of projects um, through U.S. the Department of Interior, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, where money was provided after uh, Hurricane Sandy um, arrived. So there were, I know there was like three dams, I think, in New Jersey that were paid for uh, through that money. One was uh, the Hughesville Dam on the Muskingum River. All right. So yeah, it definitely influenced that. People became concerned about dam failures. Uh, um, uh, as well. Now that storm itself, the rain event wasn't as bad as obviously the tidal flooding. That was huge. But Irene and um, and and its uh, sister, Tropical Storm Lee, that came right up to, right after it. That caused it a lot of problems. Mm-hmm. And so that was another one that really people started to become aware of. Yeah, my dams are it could fail, and I probably need to remove it. I wish I could remember some of the stats that the DEP came saying how more like prevalent a hundred year. They're like a hundred year old storm you will get isn't really a hundred year old storm anymore. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. It's like how many will occur over the next 20 years. Yeah. You know, and I would and imagine, the, I'm sorry, I was going to say that would, I would imagine that has to impact what dams are looked at next. Yes. And that's, that's a, that's the big deal. We're kind of going back to where we talked about initially uh, where, you know, uh, uh, storms, especially in the Northeast are becoming more intense. So, you know, we've been using a hundred year storm that we consider is, is using information from 30 years ago. And so is it really a 100 year frequency storm today, or is it something, you know, lower than that? And it's, it's not really that. And the hundred year storm is something higher. Um, and so that is, that's the big changing issue. And that's where, um, I don't think the Bureau of Dam Safety has changed their requirements yet for, for, I got to check, uh, for using higher flows, but land use has through the, uh, if you need a flood hazard permit or you're doing stormwater design, you have to use the, uh, you know, the year 2100 to look at, to compare what it's doing now and design around that. So we're starting to come around to figuring out that, yeah, the hundred year storm is happening a lot, a lot more than it was. And maybe we can't really call it the hundred year storm anymore. <laughs> well, I was thinking, I, I've, my entire life, I've lived within an hour of where I grew up. So over 50 years, I've, I've been in this mm-hmm. area. And I think of just 
in the last five years how many tornado warnings we've gotten. I don't remember ever maybe one like my entire life up until like the last five years and how many we've had one go through down the road and the amount of of you know three inch four inch rainstorms happening like very quickly. Now I know we're in a in an interesting area where coastal plain and Piedmont kind of meet along the river and it's the the systems are always a little more volatile but um it just there's really been a change at least to me in the last five years oh yeah there's i mean um in in hopewell township in mercer county i mean when uh, there was a, actually an isolated storm that dropped like 10 10 inches of rain in, in less than 12 hours and and then it was followed up by ida um and the combination of those two obliterate i went to look at streams i couldn't find the stream it was gone it was obliterated it was there was you you could see all the, the stone around it. You don't you know, you knew there was a stream there, but you couldn't figure out where it was. Wow. Um, and it made it unrecognizable. It basically these these events are becoming what I call geologic events. They're literally changing the the geological history, at least the surficial geologic history of areas when these big storms happen and they, they create sudden massive changes to our river systems. And when you calculate in the amount of impervious surface we now have uh, compared to historically, it just – those storms become greater risk. Well, and that's another question. So, you know, that is – are we getting more storms and we're, we're getting more flooding, coastal flooding? I mean if you – or is it just that there's so many more people there now mm-hmm. that we're putting people in harm's way? Um, and that uh, it's just – is it just – I think it's a combination of the two. Definitely climate change is is having a huge impact, sea level rise, intense floods uh, and storms. But we also have more people going to these these areas. And so what we also know is dangerous is actually kind of attractive and, and relaxing at the same time. <laughs> so it's it's definitely and it's a huge economy, especially like on the New Jersey coast. It's big. It's a big economy. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 definitely a challenge. Yeah, that's uh, going back to Hurricane Sandy. That was had from a dollar figure um, was the most expensive hurricane ever at, at that point, at least I believe. Yeah. And, but you think it really wasn't all, it was a powerful hurricane, but it wasn't nearly what Katrina was or, yeah. or some of these monster storms that would hit yeah. the Gulf coast. It's just that there's so much more expensive infrastructure that's in New York city, the New Jersey coast that was destroyed. That it just, it's stuff that cost more. Um, was a lot of that. Yeah, so absolutely. it wasn't like the storm do, was that much went, more impactful. It's just yeah. things are a lot more expensive. Yeah. And people, and what did people do? They got oh, bricks yeah. on those, those damaged houses and they went and built bigger ones. Yep, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What's, but, what's your favorite dam removal success story? Is there one that, that really stands out where something happened that you didn't expect or just it, it happened exactly as planned? You know, that's a great question. I'm not sure I've ever really thought about that. I mean, we've, <laughs> as, as a firm, we've removed, we've been involved, in, well, not involved, we've actually from construction to completion or from design to completion have been involved. Actually, our uh, Paulina is our 84th dam removal wow. that we've ever worked on. Um, whew, that's a good question. I, I mean, the Columbia dam removal, I think because of its size, that this is located on the pollen scale up in northwest New Jersey, and it had so many different, there were three bridges we had to protect in the impoundment. 
Um, one was an older like arch bridge that was built back in the 18, early 1800s. Uh, another one was a county bridge that had been reconstructed in the 90s. And then that's the one uh, downstream of that, you know, closer to the dam, like 1,000 feet upstream of the dam was Route 80, the busiest highway in the country. And so that was a challenge, and, and they each required a different uh, set of ways to stabilize them and provide fish passage. But also we've been able now to watch how that the floodplain started to evolve um, how this, the river has reacted. It's a good case study. Um, so I would say if I had to, to pick one that was most impactful to me, that would be one that was really um, interesting. Now, we've also learned from our failures. And if you ever read, you know, leaderships, you know, talks and things like that is, you know, uh, having failures is, is, is what you learn from. And so no dam removal is ever perfect. We've had a few um, that have, it, you know, exposing a sewer line that we didn't expect would get exposed or a bank would fall. Um, and But we would go in there and, and as, as a team member to try to fix it and then learn from it um, as well. And so, and our clients also, it's good to have clients that understand sometimes you need that adaptive management. So even some of the ones where, um, on, uh, for example, on the Hughesville Dam, we had a large bank failure um, about two years after it was completed, believe it or not. And we went in there and repaired it. And then as we were repairing it, realizing that the stream, actually the original stream was further over than we had thought, but there could, but there's been a road embankment, a massive road and railroad embankment that was built next to it um, where we didn't see it. So it kind of gave, so it gave us the food for thought of now, okay, we need to be able to further investigate exactly where this river bed was as opposed to where, we may look at it from an aerial map and think where it was. And so that was a really uh, a big learning point. Of course, it didn't help that we had, it was like more rain than we've had, like it was continuous all the time. So the banks didn't have a chance to stabilize. And then there was a large sycamore tree that fell in and ripped up. The sycamore roots were like 12 feet in diameter. Wow. It ripped up. The, so the fact that this tree then fell, ripped up the bank and made it worse. Um, and so those are the projects that that that's a project that I definitely appreciated um, in terms of 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 learning. And, and you're always learning on these projects. So every time something happens, something, a nuance will happen that you'll have to then use that for the next dam removal. Mm -hmm. I, you, you can't predict everything. And it made me think of I think it was a presentation that your your colleague Mark Gallagher did at SEER. Was that the one where they found the pit of oil on, on one of the job sites? That, that was the, yeah, that was the Lions, uh, Lion Gate Park, I think, in Bloomfield. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. You know, and and he was saying like we everyone looked into this. No one knew it was there. We didn't expect to to find that, but there it was, and <laughs> we had to deal with it. So, yeah, yeah, and that's the thing is it's it's um like I said, dam removal is like I said is more of a prediction than it's it's a design, but it's also prediction collecting enough data to try to determine how that river is going to react and how infrastructure will react when the dam is pulled out. Um, and that also goes to funding. So even some of these things like uh, where funding is limited. So sometimes you can, you only can go with what you have. Um, mm -hmm. So you have to make your best, uh, your best um, engineering and scientific, um, you know, estimates on what you believe is going to occur. Uh, and then based on that experience, do that. So, you know, 84 dams is really something where we've kind of built on and learned over time. Mm -hmm. And so we have a pretty good idea 
um, of what's going to happen. But we're also still on those plans. We have what's called a phase three, mm-hmm. uh, an adaptive management plan so that we can go in and our client can budget for it. Are there any areas of the country that this is like a, a, a hotter topic than, than others? Um, obviously it's where the dams are. Yeah. I, and maybe it's just, uh, I'm ignorant to it, but I don't hear about many dams in the Midwest, but you hear about them on the coast more often. Are there, is this hap- Well, I know it's happening across the country, but are there any places in the country where it's happening uh, more rapidly or it's, it's a bigger issue? It's become, you know, it's interesting. We, did a, we do a Rutgers course and we do it online um, for dam removal. And it, um, we were having people in Arkansas and, 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 and Montana and California. We had a lot of different people on those calls. I would say that it's, it's becoming a really important topic all over the country. Um, the most newsworthy ones are, for example, the Klamath River in Cal- in California and Oregon. Um, that is one that it's going to be the largest dam removal in the history of the of the war, you know the, yeah. the war of dams. And um, it, it because of salmon, uh, you know the the potential extinction of that that line of salmon that could go up that river. Now, so out in the west, there's a lot of battles over. Uh, you know, on the Snake River, the dams on there, the Columbia, those are really, I'll call them um, the big dams that people are concerned about in terms of what's it doing to our fish stocks in the ocean. Mm. And so, and and it's also a huge impact on Native Americans and it has, has decimated their fisheries. Um, so I would say on the West Coast, it's, a you know, the, the projects are bigger um, and the the consequences are also, you know, just as large. But on the East Coast, it's also uh, and the Midwest. I mean, it's a big deal on the Midwest. Uh, a lot of the states there, the Great Lakes, mm-hmm. they're trying to do some restoration there. Uh, there were actually a couple of dam failures in Michigan uh, the last couple of years uh, where it really brought to the forefront the concern about dams. Um and on the on the East Coast, you know, just the 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 mat, you know, we used to have salmon down in the Connecticut River. I'm not sure we had mm-hmm. them in the Delaware, but they were in the Connecticut. And they can't get them to come back. Yeah. So that in some instances, the damage has been done. Um, but there are so. But in Maine, for example, there's a huge push because mm-hmm. we know we have opportunities to protect salmon. Um, but there are other not like the less sexy fish, like the American shad, which is a uh, still an important migratory fish. Is extreme is like an icon for. Uh, trying to restore dams and even like brook trout and trying to remove those smaller headwater dams is important. Another one, you know, I, we've also, this has moved internationally because, um, you know, if you go, there's a plug for the World Fish Migration Foundation um, and that's their worldfishmigration.org. They've actually been uh, leading the charge in Europe, starting in Europe. Um, they started a World Fish Migration Day um, and that's that's something that they push uh, because in Europe they have a massive amount of dams um, that need to be in figure. You know, Europe's been around longer than the United States, and so they've got a lot more dams. And so it's it's a worldwide uh, concern and, and topic. Um, but, yeah, I would say, you know, in the United States, the, the West Coast get the most uh, press because of the size and the and – the, and, yeah. and salmon is a, a sexier animal, so to speak, from yeah. the – perspective but it's 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 an issue all over the place yeah and that was actually going to be my follow-up was uh no i'm glad you brought up the klamath because that's like huge huge dams do we have any obviously not that scale but any big dams um on the east coast that that you've worked on 
Um, like what's the Klamath? I think one's like four hundred vertical feet. Is wow. what I read. I thought, or is, it's something. Well, that one huge. has. There's two thousand acres of lake bed that yeah. are going to be restored. Yeah. Um, I would say the answer is no. We don't. But we've worked on some pretty big dams. The Columbia Dam. 20, it was twenty feet high, but it had three hundred thousand yards of sediment wow. behind it. Wow. Wow. Which is big for the East Coast. Um, and um, obviously up in uh, up in, in Maine, um, uh, those rivers up there, they've had some large scale. Uh, the VZ Dam up there, there was a, a several dams on the, I think it's the Penobscot River. Mm-hmm. Um, that really started a lot of the dam removal movement yeah. um, in the United States. And that was actually sort of a, I'll call it a, a West Coast analog because um, it impacted Native Americans fisheries and it impacted Saint Atlantic salmon um, and so, and they were relatively large. And so, um, those dams had definitely a, a large impact, yeah. um, as well on the East coast, but there are several dams that are pretty darn big on the East coast that, uh, no longer serve a function and, and, and are targeted for removal. What, what sparked your interest in, in dam removal? Is it just something that kind of fell into that you enjoyed or, or was there a, an interest that, that led you in that path? Well, it's, it's an interesting story because I, you know, I talked about how I grew up in Pompton Lakes and loved to be outdoors and on lakes and rivers and fishing and, and things like that. And I actually started my career as a geotechnical engineer um, at a bridge engineering firm, uh, which was called Good Kind of Day at the time. And then they were bought by Dewberry, which is a, a, a current large and successful firm. Um, and I started to realize that I, I wasn't necessarily enjoying that part of it. I, and so I started thinking about what I wanted to do. And realizing that um, I wanted to do something in streams and rivers and wetlands. And so dam rule still wasn't on the table there in the mid-90s. But um, well, I ended up meeting my you know, current business partner, Mark, and our former uh, partner, Steve, and, uh, and Fred Lovenow, who's still with us uh, at the firm, um, and started to do stream restoration work. Uh, but it, it started when Hurricane Floyd happened uh, in, I think it was 99, and there was a lot of dam failures in the state. The states sent out their letters, um, and I said, "Good, this is, might be a good marketing opportunity for dam compliance, so let's look into this. And so um, we sent letters out to, to clients. We met with a number of them. A lot of them just couldn't afford to fix their dam. Did some homework, and I saw that American Rivers uh, was starting to work with NOAA on these grants, and so we started looking toward them. And... Our first dam removal I did was in uh, Phillipsburg, uh, the Purcell Mill Dam, um, and that was uh, an, that was part of the Morris Canal. Um, and so that uh, dam, we actually cut a about a fifty foot slice out of the dam of the spillway and, and restored the stream. And that's where I started really looking at that. I went to a couple of University of Wisconsin uh, and American River combined um, uh, seminars. Uh, there was a great one up in uh, up in New Hampshire back in like 2001. I went to, and just really got. I was like, "Wow, this is amazing!" It was it was mind blowing that there were people out there who were very interested in dam removal, and were pursuing this. Uh, but it was it was at its infancy stage, and so that's when I was like, "This is something. This is really something." And as a company, we want to be impactful, and this to me was one of the most impactful ways to do restoration work. And so I would say that that would in 1999 was kind of my aha moment of wow this is this is really something, 
and you know it's been great. And now a lot of people are doing camera removals. I mean, it's 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 really gained its momentum. Where we would bid on projects and maybe have one, two competitors, and now we'll have like ten, <laughs> uh, which is actually good. Yeah. I mean, oh, it's yeah. good because there's a lot of dam removals out there, so there's there's enough to go around. And so, um, and the more impactful we can be on these removals, and the more removals we can get, and this of these obsolete dams that are number one not serving a function anymore, but at the same time can re- do a huge impact for restoration. You know, and I, I, I'm gonna get on my soapbox, but, you know, they say we're in this, the, this, the sixth uh, mass extinction on the planet and rivers have, uh, you know, by species, probably the highest, the lar- the, the highest number of threatened mm-hmm. species for extinction because of pollution to rivers and dams and those things. And so when we remove a dam, I can feel good that I really feel great that there's a, a sort of ex- maybe helping in some respects, reversing that, that trend. And to see shad and eel and and herring be able to then access areas they haven't accessed in two to three hundred years is really uh, it's an emotional uh, it's an emotional um, um, event that occurs. It's it's just it's yeah it's it brings tears to your eyes to see that these fish now can get back. Yeah. When yeah. when you entered college, did you know what you wanted to do? Did you like was this like? Based on your childhood growing up in that area, or or did you find your way kind of? I would say it's. I had to find my way. I mean, uh, I loved fishing, loved all that stuff. You know, got to high school, discovered girls and, <laughs> and uh, my buddies, and then that got a little distracted. I did work. My dad was is a uh, general contractor. He built like custom homes and things. So I got involved with that, and, and um, you know, I, I was able to you know work for him in the summers, his company and his carpenters, and I was like, hmm. I really would like construction management. That would be kind of cool. And I, I, again, not thinking about natural environments. So uh, we ended up deciding that I would go civil engineering because it would be sort of a, a, a myriad of opportunities. Um, so that's when I went to Rutgers University um, and got my undergrad in 1990 there and went out and grabbed it. Frankly, I think it was the economy was a little slow, so I grabbed the first job I could doing bridges. Um, and that's where I got into geotech. And, and then I just was like, well, I'm not really – I'm not necessarily, it's it's a noble profession. It's interesting, but it's not really like, it's not doing something for me. And um, so started looking into what I love to do. And there was actually a company that really started a lot of this stream restoration called Interfluve. Uh, I'm giving them a plug right now. I guess they're a competitor now, but uh, based out of Montana at the time, but they started innovating on uh, bank stabilization work and things like that. So uh, I started looking at them and back then no internet. So I'd be land and water magazine and uh, I'd be looking at that stuff. And I called them and I talked to them as some of the, the founding partners there. And I, they even, they had a project on the East coast. I went and I, I went and had dinner with them and I was like, this is, you know, this, this is really inspiring me. And you know, guess what? I can do what I did as a kid. I can go back and play in streams and, and rivers and lakes and, and do all the things and, and that I, and it really is sort of a, combination of I love I love engineering but I'm also a kid inside you know and I love fishing and I love uh the natural environment and it really it just it just came together and 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 meshed and it's something that I um you know have a passion I mean I still love what I do it's it's just amazing to me you know every stream restoration lake you know even a restoration on a lake or a dredging project or um, the coastal resiliency project that we're doing, you know, um, it's just inspiring to see the, 
to see the the reaction of nature and how we can we can help at least reverse and try to not necessarily we're not going back to before humans were here, but at least we can we can restore the functions and values of those systems. Yeah, and that's what really does. I always find it interesting just how when you find you meet someone that seems perfect for the profession they do, how they got there. Not only did did it help find you or guide you in that way, but for your paths, your path to cross with Steve and Mark and and Fred, and because we appreciate well, the, yeah, we appreciate the work that you do, and and for it to find you and then for you to find them, it just those kinds of coincidences just always seem to amaze me. Yeah, it was it was definitely uh, a really happy coincidence. Um, I actually first got the job because they, or I got the interview because they mistook my, the the receptionist at the time. I uh, called in and I said, I'm looking for a position in geotechnical engineering. Might you guys need it? It was Coastal Environmental Service at the time. She misunderstood me and thought it was GIS. So instead oh, of geotechnical, so she got me in for the interview. And I'm like, no, I don't, I don't do GIS. I don't, I'm not even sure what that is at the time. It was like 1994, 95. So I said, um, <clears throat> I'm a geotechnical engineer. And then Steve was like, wait a minute. I know you're not in here for the position we're looking for, but we need, we need somebody that understands soils and engineering and things like that. And then I got hired by them. So Steve's been, Steve Souza and Mark Gallagher have been a huge influence in my life uh, professionally. Um, you know, we've been in the trenches and, and Fred Love now has been, you know, an inspiration to me. He's, you know, he's, he's a, um, He's become a national expert on on limnology, lake you know lake uh, lake management, and um, um, it's it's really I got into a group of people that were, you know, frankly, just all aligned in in our philosophy. So yeah. it was great. Yeah. I was one of awesome. I love those stories. Oh yeah. <laughs> do you before yeah. we ask the final question? Do you have any questions? No, now? I think I'm good. Um, I. Th- I'm sure I there's plenty more, but it's <laughs> it really is just a fascinating subject that I think. Um, it kind of has been under the radar. Uh, there's a, it's wildly successful. There's very few downsides to it, and um, at least on the East Coast, and and maybe it's just my perception. It feels like it's under the radar. People don't even really go know what amazing things are going on right on their noses until this Klamatham thing came up the last couple of years, and that's been getting a lot of nationwide publicity. Um, I guess. Primarily because of the scale, and uh, and then you tie the salmon into it, but I think that's. Well, it was interesting too because you say something. It's you know I look at it internally, like on my LinkedIn, you know stuff. Yeah. So it, in the industry, it's very well known, but to, yeah. to the quote unquote layperson out in the public, you know they're focused on their expertise. They don't. It's not really known. And I'll give another little plug. There's a band called Nation of Language. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. They're in their 30s. I don't know if you ever heard of them before. But they talked about dam removal on an Instagram post once. It was just a, a, a random thing. Uh, one of my colleagues posted it on LinkedIn, and I, I started harassing them. <laughs> so yeah. he's like, you got to come see one of our dam removals. And a few weeks ago, the lead singer and his and, and uh, his bandmate, and uh, and actually bandmate and wife, uh, Ian and Noel, uh, Ian and um, Aiden uh, Noel, uh, came out to see the project. Oh, wonderful. And, yeah, brought his parents. It was really an awesome experience because I think, you know, to see somebody that's, you know, in a, a very different industry yeah. um, and is successful at it, to see them uh, be interested in that. Ian, Ian Devaney, the lead singer, is very, you know, he is um, um, very interested in science and things like that. So 
uh, it was sort of uh, a great to bring them out and talk to them. It was funny because I was like, man, you really love talking about this stuff. And I was like, I, yeah, I guess I do. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe I'm looking for a captive audience. But uh, check them out on Spotify because they're awesome. really good. Yeah. I, um, I wrote it down. They're also very pro, pro-ecological restoration. Mm-hmm. So yeah. ah, Well, it. that was actually it was the uh, Les Connectgong River Dam removal that um, that got us or started the conversation between us and one of our guests, a guy Joe Cermelli, who's a, a fishing writer, and uh, and we had him on just kind of talk about how, as a fisherman, what do you care about with with nature and, and wildlife, and kind of meshing that they should care about native plants a lot more. Um, but it was I was listening to his podcast, and he's talking about he brought up the Musconet Kong river dam removal and how he like vaguely heard something about it because of the the shad coming back and i guess he liked to catch cool. shad on the delaware river <laughs> he's like oh this is kind of cool so i actually wrote to him and said hey yeah this is something that's a little bit bigger than than what you might know about and uh it's really really cool what's going on so i know he's interested in it too i love yeah. all those connections they make yeah. it all worthwhile oh they yeah they really do yep all right so now is the big question, which is always our last question, the simplest question and the hardest question to answer, um, and we ask everyone, and we won't hold a, a flame to your hand on picking one or, or saying it has to be forever, but what is your favorite native plant? Ooh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a challenging question. <laughs> I have a, well, I, I'll focus in. I, I love trees. Like trees are okay. my – like trees fascinate me because of just you know the longevity, the – you know, what they witness and, and just the, their size. Um, growing up, um, my, I would say the three trees that I knew very well were the uh, uh, the American beech, uh, the black oak, and the white oak. And um, and actually, sorry, there's a fourth, the hemlock. And unfortunately, the hemlock, which I love as a tree, is threatened. But if I had to pick between those, let's say now four, I would say the American beech is one of my favorite trees. It's just a beautiful I love the, the, you know, the smooth bark, the white, you know, the whiteness of the, the smooth bark. It, it takes a long time to grow, and, and it, but it's also a pretty hardy tree once it establishes. Um, so I would say the American beech is, is one of my, is my favorite. Uh, that is a great choice. I love that it holds its leaves a little bit longer. So even though right yeah. now everything's defoliated, you can still pick out a beech in a forest. By the, yep. the the golden leaves, nothing like a beech forest, like a beech and oak forest. Um, yeah, and they're they're also the, those those trees are also uh, at least the oaks and the the beech. Are, I don't know if the, I'm not sure about the hemlock. I'm not an expert on it, but I know those the three of those trees are huge re, uh, food resources for wildlife. So mm-hmm. I know that's like in Vermont, it's a big deal to have a beech forest because of, you know it's a. Uh, yep. uh, provides food there yeah so it's really you know they're foundational plants that that help support a lot of the local uh wildlife so it's pretty cool great choices all great choices and you think of lepidoptera with white oak and and things like that that doug talamy has brought out and made more more conversational and more people know about oh the the white oak coast was at 500 different lepidoptera that's i love hearing someone say that that you don't expect hearing that from. <laughs> right. <laughs> all right. So we always end the show with final thoughts. And and this is we'll all take a turn. We throw it to you first. This is where we just kind of hand the mic over to you and, and you can use the time to summarize, promote something, mention something that we hadn't talked about. But we hand it over and the floor is yours. Oh wow. Thank you. Um so 
you know, like I said, um, you know, uh, we love dam removals. I mean, here at Princeton Hydro, we also love a lot of other types of work um, in restoration and green infrastructure and stormwater work um, and lake management, you name it, um, and, and geosciences. But uh, the dam removal work is sort of part of our ecosystem restoration efforts. It's just one tool in the, in the toolbox to uh, to try to get ecosystem restoration done. So, you know, uh, you know, I love to focus in on dam removal, uh, but we also have to look at the larger picture and the landscape and try to do restoration there. Uh, they talk about trying to set aside 30% of the Earth's land uh, for nat- the natural environment, and I think we're not doing a great job at that right, right now. Um, and so I think there needs to be more done uh, for that, but I'm, um, you know, as an engineer, I love these challenges and, and, and working on these projects. So, um, a couple of, you know, like if, if people are looking for different, um, sources, uh, one of the, in New Jersey, there's the, uh, um, the statewide dam removal partnership. It's actually, uh, started by the nature conservancy run by Beth Styler Barry. If somebody wants to go look at it, it's at, uh, newjerseydams.org. So it's a great resource. Uh, you can even check out the Nature Conservancy, you know, at nature.org. Um, American Rivers has a massive uh, a database and, and uh, amount of documents um, on dam removals throughout the state, and that's AmericanRivers.org. Um, um, and Herman Wanningen from the World Fish Migration Foundation um, has really been spreading the word literally internationally um, and is really doing a lot of great work over in Europe. Um, and that's worldfishmigration.com, and that's a great place to go look at. And But if you're also looking for local stuff in New Jersey, you can go to the Muskinnikong Watershed Association, uh, Raritan Headwaters, uh, South Jersey, you have CU Morris, uh, you have Save Barnegat Bay, um, you have the American Literal Society, um, the Great Swamp uh, uh, Watershed Association. You, you really reach out to any of these organizations, uh, and I'm probably leaving a few out, and I apologize to those I have, but... Um, they're all great local places of information to go um, and talk to people about what they can do to help, you know, restore these watersheds and, and, and you know, do the good work to try to reverse some of the damage that we've come and, and allow us to, as humans to coexist, you know, with, with the natural environment. And you listed so many great organizations that do wonderful work. Um, we're going to try to put a lot of these uh, links in the show notes. So if anyone is looking for them, they can look at the show notes and, and be able to find any of these. Tom, do you want to cool. go or you want me to go? Yeah. yeah. That mine, was a wonderful thought, by yeah. the way. I, I'm sorry. That was a great way to – so many so many great things that you mentioned that we hadn't even talked about. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. Yeah, and, and my thought was uh, kind of rolling off of what Jeff just said is there's so many great organizations out there, and if you want to find out more – about uh, dam removal in your area, there is probably something happening, at least in your state, I, I would think. Um, and uh, probably the easiest way is just to find those organizations, whether you know about them already or you just uh, just Google dam removal in your area. And I did, I just tried dam removal Iowa, and there's a news story, and then it has kind of the, the players are kind of listed in there, so you can kind of figure it out from there. Oh, so yeah. And, and, I think and that's, that's if you don't know, you want to, uh, get involved in this in some way and you don't know who to contact, that's one way to do it. So. Yeah, that's that's a great point too because, you know, your story, your your uh, podcast obviously is not limited to state boundaries. You guys are, I think, being listened to all over the place. But, yeah, there's like, and again, you could just pick out, there's, you know, I could just pick out Northeast PA or, or Eastern PA and the Wildlands Conservancy, you know, another organization you can go. So I'm sure if you Google 
uh, you know, river river organization or watershed organization in your state, you'd be able to find it something. Hey, here's a trivia for Tom. You know what our, our – so our number one city that listens mm-hmm. to us is New York City, yeah. which makes sense. You know what our number two biggest market is? We're as not going as, state by state, but as far city. As cities? Big oh, city, yeah. No clue. Is it, is it Philadelphia? No. No. Philadelphia was like six or seven. Interesting. Uh, Baltimore. Seattle. Seattle. Interesting. Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah. Not not what I would have expected, but yeah. Seattle is our second biggest market. Yeah. Oh, that's, so. that's cool. That's great. Coast to coast. Yes. Um, so my final thought, I was just kind of reflecting on where we're at as a podcast and where we started. We started wanting to talk about native plants, and here we are talking about dam removal. But when you when you think of all the things that we've talked about, it's just another spoke to the wheel. And – these things all go together, and you can't have one conversation without having multiple conversations because they all interconnect and they're all part of each other. So even though this is something maybe you didn't think about, we hope that everyone had an opportunity to learn something about it. I learned a ton today. Um, and and get involved and ask more questions is just one way. you know. And, and we did tie it into native plants, and so many of these conversations all exist because of each mm-hmm. other. Um, and it's amazing how much it overlaps and how much uh, we get to work with each other because of these things. So it's it's not just one thing, and it's never one thing. It's it's how everything interacts. And, and just we hope that you learn something new today with, with this subject. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, so. – there you go. That's All right. Yeah, so that's going to wrap us up for today. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed listening to Jeff Gall from Princeton Hydro. For more information, you can visit their website and see all the amazing things they do. Uh, that website is www.princetonhydro.com. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Native Plants Healthy Planet presented by Pylons Nursery. Thank you to the egocentric plastic men for contributing our theme music. Make sure you stream or buy their music wherever you consume music. Thank you to Dave Bennett for our Native Plant Anthem. You can follow us on Twitter at Pinelands Nursery or Pineland Nursery, sorry. Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Native Plants underscore Healthy Planet, and YouTube at Pinelands Nursery. Don't forget about the question and comment line. We have two calls for the next buzz, actually, Tom. I don't think I shared that with you. Interesting, cool. Uh, you can call us at 215-346-6189. You can ask a question or leave a comment. We'll do our best to play it on a future episode of The Buzz. And thank you to all the new members of the Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group for keeping it uh, – such a kind and uh, generous community. Yeah. So you can buy uh, Native Plants Healthy Planet merch at our website, www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. We have a whole bunch of stuff up there, and many of you just bought stuff through our, our Black Friday, Cyber Monday week sale. Um, so thank you very much for everyone who, who contributed to that because we don't keep any of the money uh, that we make off the shirts. We donate it to organizations we feel are doing a really good job in that that space. So uh, you're not only getting a stylish T-shirt, sweatshirt, apron, whatever, phone case. Phone case. Um, you're also bottle. giving back in in a way uh, through us. And spreading so, a good message. Yeah. So uh, thank you again for listening to our podcast. You can listen really wherever you're listening now, or you can find it on your, your podcast platform of choice, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, iHeartRadio. There's plenty of them out there. So yeah. um, whichever one you choose. And if it's possible on that platform, uh, do us a favor, make sure you're subscribed and leave a five-star review. Those go a long way into helping us and uh, giving us some feedback. If you uh, do a little it write-up with that review. It up. We're, I, think, yeah. I just looked yesterday. We're 18th uh, yeah. on the Apple Nature yeah. Charts, which propelled us above a bunch of 
Bigfoot podcast. Yeah. So yeah. thank you. <laughs> so um, uh, if you do a little write-up with that review, I give you a shout-out on our Buzz episodes for uh, to thank you. So, uh, yeah. So with that, thank you, everyone. I'm Tom. And I am Fran. Thanks again, everyone. Coming up next week, we'll have a new Buzz episode. Make sure you tune in. And until then, keep it native. Listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.